South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, it is an absolutely beautiful morning out there this morning. It's just the time of year. It just really reminds us why we love living in South Texas. And, uh, my engineer Don and I were talking about just how wonderful the temperature was this morning. Stars are so, were so bright out there, and uh, it just uh, just uh, that crispness to the air that tells you fall really is in the air. It's going to be a little warm this afternoon, but golly, there are a lot of things to be doing out in the yard and garden, and that's what we're here to talk about for the next three hours. I do actually have a couple of open lines. Lots of Sunday mornings, all the lines are taken by now, but uh, if you have a question, if you dial quickly, you just might get through. I'm sure you know the numbers, uh, 210-599-5555. We can talk about things of interest to me, but I'd a lot rather talk about things of interest to you and what your questions are. So we'll get started, and uh, Jeannie is at the top of the list. Good morning, Jeannie. Good morning. Good morning. Bob, I have a question about uh, my plumeria. Mm-hmm. When, when can I cut some of the long stems off? Well, you can do it any time um, if you're planning to root them and start more plants from them. If you do it at this time of year, you will have to have a propagating match. You'll have some way to keep them really very warm. Usually the best time to do it is in uh, early spring, but there's nothing wrong. If they're just too big to manage for the winter months, uh, you can go ahead and, and cut them back at this point. And if you do want to start more plants, it's important that the pieces that you cut off, probably no more than usually about 12 inches in length, but you need to let them callous, which means let them dry for two or three days, let that cut in, seal over. If you have any that are especially long that you take off that you, it sounds silly, but if you want to cut them in multiple pieces to propagate them, take your Sharpie or something like that and put a little arrow on each one, which way is up, because if you just take that piece and you, you know, cut it into several sections and then you have to go off and do something else for a minute, it is quite difficult to tell which end is up and which end is down, and you have to get them properly oriented if you want them to take root and uh, grow to, you know, have more of them or share with your friends or whatever. That's a great idea. Okay, if I cut them off, you know, the ends, the leaves are all on the end. Would I take the leaves off or leave them, just let them fall off naturally? They'll fall off naturally. Um, If you want to take some of them off, you can, but it seems like they always start, you know, oozing that that kind of sticky sap if you take them off, but that's strictly up to you. Most of what you cut back, of course, are probably not going to have a lot of leaves on them. If you wait much longer, the leaves are all going to drop naturally anyway. So uh, uh, that that really is strictly up to you. Okay, well, thank you so much. You have a great day. Well, you are certainly welcome, and you do the same, and I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, Jeannie. All right, uh, next up is Diana. Good morning, Diana. Hi, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. It's an absolutely gorgeous day out there. Oh, I admire your show. I listen to it as much as I can, and I have your podcast, too. Well, I I appreciate that. Sure. (laughs) About hibiscus. I have a hibiscus. I love the plant, and uh, my daughter and I, between us, probably have about six or seven of them. And we're concerned what to do with them for the winter months. 
Okay, well, there, there are three different types of hibiscus, really. The, uh, there's the woody bush we call an althea, which is totally cold-hardy, down to 10 degrees below zero, and really don't need to do anything special with it. Then we have what they call the mallow-type hibiscus and Texas star and that group. And these are hibiscus that normally freeze to the ground in the winter but then come back out each spring. Those, again, um, if they're in the ground, you might put some mulch around them before it gets real cold. And fertilizing everything is important going into cold weather because it makes things more cold-hardy. But beyond that, a little mulch around them is really all you need to do and it's perfectly normal for them to freeze back to ground level. The third group are what we call the tropical hibiscus. And those are going to be the really brightly colored ones, the yellows, the reds, uh, the pinks, the multicolors. And they cannot take freezing weather. They, you know, they'll go right down to freezing without much damage. But you need to have a place to bring them in. Um, I know people that plant them in the yard in the spring and just dig them up and put them back in pots, you know, every fall. In fact, I used to work with a gentleman up in the hill country, and he had trees that were like six to eight feet tall. And about this time every year, he would dig them up out of his yard and bring them back in, and I'd pot them up in five-gallon containers for the winter months. So uh, other than, you know, just being ready to bring them in and having a good, bright, even a sunny place, uh, and it doesn't mean that they necessarily have to stay in all winter. You can just plan on bringing them in when the nights are going to be near, well, any near, near frost point. When it's going to be down in the 30s, I would very definitely plan to cover them. If the temperatures can be much below freezing, I would very definitely bring them in. And if they're going to stay inside for any length of time, they need to stay in absolutely the sunniest place you have for them. But uh, other than that, yeah, I guess the one thing that I uh, might suggest is just to be sure you're not bringing insects into the house along with the plants, it's sometimes a good idea to dust the soil in the pots pretty heavily with something like diatomaceous earth. If you find that any of the pots actually have something like a colony of fire ants in there, you can make a very dilute solution. And by very dilute, I mean maybe a teaspoon per gallon. But you make a real dilute solution of orange oil and just use that to water the plants, and that will kill the ants or anything else. But don't make it, don't make it any stronger than that. Or you can wind up burning the roots and causing problems. But uh, yes, I have the diamantation uh, I have one of those trees that's braided, and uh, it's absolutely beautiful. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm afraid that I lost my hibiscus last year by bringing it in, and it wasn't in a sunny spot. Do we yeah. have to water them as much as we're watering them now every day? Well, you know, the secret, whether it's summer, winter, or any time in between, is, you know, watering as the plant needs it. And it's going to be a lot more often in the summer than it is in the winter. The best rule to follow is just when you water, do it really thoroughly. There's no such thing as too much water at any one time. And most of the roots on your hibiscus, like most house plants, are going to be all the way down to the bottom of the pot. So when you water them, really soak them. And then let them go until the soil is dry on the surface before you water thoroughly again. Now, you know, with the weather that we've had, you know, even this week when we're way, way, way away from freezing, uh, plants are still not drying out nearly as quickly. I mean, when you look at three weeks ago, I'd say most of our potted plants were watering about half as often as we were even three weeks ago. So that will very definitely decrease during the winter months. But uh, the rule to follow is just feel the soil. When the soil's dry about a knuckle deep, then it's time to water thoroughly once again. And keep in mind that 
that hibiscus are tropical plants in their native environment. They would be growing year-round, and they'll, they'll do some growing over the winter months for you, but since they grow year-round, it means that they need to be fertilized year-round. So keep on giving them the has to grow or whatever good fertilizer you use. You can cut back on that. You can fertilize probably about half as often as you would during the warm months, uh, but it is still important to fertilize through the winter. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate that. Well, Have a it's good my, day. Thank you. So you, you do the same, and uh, if you if you have to bring them back to be able to, or cut them back to be able to bring them inside, it's okay to do it, but don't do your general pruning until um, next spring. When you cut them back at a time of the year that the days are getting shorter, the light is less intense, the new growth comes out a little bit spindly. It's just just not nearly as strong as if you wait and cut them back in the spring when the days are getting longer, when the light intensity is going up. That's going to be the time to do your major pruning. This time of year, keep the pruning to just whatever it takes to be able to get them inside. Well, thank you, Bob. My daughter had a hibiscus, and she moved, and she came outside, and the whole, all the flowers, it was eaten all the way down to almost the bottom of the pot, and uh, turned out to be a deer. So oh, we yeah. moved it inside, into the backyard, and it's beautiful again now. That was <laughs> the beginning of the summer. <laughs> so, well, yeah, we have to watch out. Deer like them. <laughs> Oh, they most certainly do. We we won't say they ate it. We say we will say that they pruned it for her. But uh, yeah, yeah, if you live in deer country, you've got to either keep them where the deer can't get to them, or you've got to spray them with a really hot pepper oil or one of the deer repellents to keep them away because they just view hibiscus as sort of a tropical salad. Yeah, it is. Well, thank <laughs> you again, Bob. You have a wonderful day. You do the same, Diane. It's good to talk to you. I appreciate it, Diane. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh-huh. All right. Um, let's see. Let me get a, a break done here, and then we'll get back to more phone calls. I get to talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way. Already figuring what I need to go by Rhonda's tomorrow and pick up because I don't just tell you about Rhonda's. I really believe in her products and her philosophies. She just is out to help you achieve the absolute best health possible without using pharmaceutical drugs or anything that has side effects and, you know, anything that's real negative. She has products and, and they're so much better quality than anything you can find in a grocery store or in a chain pharmacy but products just to help maintain good health. I take a couple of things to stimulate to maintain my immune system. I think that's the best thing we do in fighting off all the different wintertime diseases, COVID included. She also has supplements that will just help you maintain that. But she has things that can deal with pain, natural products to deal with joint pain and in many cases eliminated. She has things to deal with problems like digestive issues or even mood issues. She's just a wonderful place to visit, and just a few more days left in her foot detox special. If you've never experienced it, uh, you can do a, it's about a 15 or 20 minute foot bath uh, that just removes so many toxins from your body, you absolutely won't believe the things that come out of your feet when you're doing a foot detox bath. And she's got a special for right now for September only. Don't know if she'll consider extending it. I kind of hope she does, but uh, 25 bucks for the foot bath special. Plus she does red light therapy at both stores, beamer light therapy at both stores. And these are things that are well accepted by the medical 
community. Shelter so does reflexology at the Northside store by appointment. You need to get by and see her. Northside stores in the shopping center there at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. Southside stores down on Southwest Military Drive. Both stores open Monday through Saturday, always closed on Sunday, but open Monday through Saturday to serve you at Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Next two callers are going to be Kathy and Wayne, and Kathy is up first. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. I Good have morning. A question about, I have a question about a live oak tree. Uh, okay. We had been prepping our ground. We live in the hill country just uh, uh, outside of Bernie. And okay. so we we had a lot of uh, four-way mix uh, brought in from stone and soil and prepped the ground with the skid steer and, and did some berm areas and um, in some whole areas we added this good soil. And the we found a live oak tree we want to get possibly, but I'm afraid to invest so much money into it and only have it fail when we transplant it. The, the mm-hmm. one we found is in a... 65 gallon, about okay. four or five inches in diameter, probably about 12, 10, 12 feet high. Um, nice straight bark, but I didn't know if I needed to try to, you know, they grow slow, but if I needed to go back down to a maybe a 30 gallon size and well, when you any tree that you purchase, uh, all you're doing is buying time as you buy a bigger tree. In other words, uh, a five-gallon tree is one year ahead of a one-gallon tree. A 15-gallon tree is usually one year ahead of a five-gallon tree. A uh, 30-gallon tree is usually about a year ahead of a 15-gallon tree. And then you just, you know, keep on going up. So what you're doing is just buying time, and a little tree is, you know, absolutely as good as a big tree. It's just not as big. Uh, nowadays, when we have bigger trees in containers or in boxes, as you get into the really big ones, uh, it enables you to get most all of the root system. I still recommend when it's removed from the pot that you look very carefully at it to be sure that there are no circling or girdling roots. In fact, I usually would just slice down one side of the root ball to begin with. And actually, before you even select the tree, look very carefully because many times, at, at one common misconception, this is an excellent question, by the way, one common misconception is that a root has to completely circle the trunk in order to girdle. Actually, one root can be just pressing on one side of the trunk, can actually create a girdling effect and can cause that side of the tree to not grow or develop nearly as quickly. So if you're looking down at the base of the tree and you see what looks like a, looks like a big root pressing against it or kind of girdling around it, pass it up and get a different tree. Because uh, in a lot of cases, those those trees come with built-in problems and of course always select a tree where that root flare is exposed where you can see the first major roots kind of radiating out in all directions from the trunk. Now one thing I would tell you and uh, 
I'm going back a lot of years to back when I was digging holes and, and installing plants for people. And I had a client out in the Windcrest area, still remember the white laws very well. And he wanted like six smaller live oaks, and these were like five-gallon containers at the time. I couldn't provide him with a big tree, but he went out and paid somebody several hundred dollars for a much larger bald and burlap tree. And it was beautiful the day that he planted it. But five years later, my smaller trees that brought their whole root system with them were bigger than his big expensive tree and that's not to say you know that you shouldn't plant a big tree if that's what you know if it's a spot that just really requires it but uh, don't don't hesitate to you know look at some smaller trees because the bigger ones aren't better they're just bigger but it just you know you have to decide what your budget is and how important it is for you to uh, to have a big tree let me ask you just a couple other questions what direction uh from bernie is is your new place uh we are west uh, we're just on the other side from you uh on the back side of tapatio okay it's, um so Okay, that that tells me what I need. And the reason I'm asking is because uh, uh, there is oak wilt all around Bernie. There's a bad little section of it, about a mile out 46 going toward my house. Uh, there's a lot of it north of Bernie, not as much east of it. There's a fair amount of uh, oak wilt in Fair Oaks Ranch. Uh, out in Tapatio Springs area, there is not much at this time but i would i would think carefully about all the different oaks because uh, live oaks and red oaks of course are susceptible to oak wilt although there are things you can do to prevent it but don't rule out a burr oak or if you have a fairly deep soil a lacy's oak monterey oaks i'm kind of on the fence line about because we just don't know what the weather's going to be and i've not seen any of them killed in the bernie area but there are a number of them that suffered some damage you know during the severe cold we had back in february but um, if I were going to plant, and I have planted a couple of additional oaks, uh, I'm choosing mainly bur oaks to plant because they make the same big, magnificent, long live tree as a live oak. Only real differences are that, number one, they shed their leaves in the winter, and number two, they just don't have a problem with oak wilt. So don't, unless there's a specific reason that you just want to have a live oak, don't, don't tie yourself just to that one species of tree. Okay, very good. And I had another question about, uh, we have a crepe myrtle tree. It's a white crepe myrtle. Uh, uh-huh. the, uh, is it okay time of year to uh, prune it back? The, the canopy has gotten real thick and full, and I just wanted to prune it a little bit. Uh, I, I would wait to- at least a month. I would wait at least okay. a month. In fact, I'd wait until the leaves are off. And you know me, I can't just tell you that. I have to tell you why. Uh, the reason okay. is that if we do pruning on much any much of any kind of uh, shrub at this time of year, and, and that's a crepe myrtle is basically a big shrub, but any time you prune on it, you're going to stimulate new growth. It takes a while for that new growth to harden off and become resistant to cold damage. And if we prune, you know, September, October, even early November, uh, that can stimulate new growth, which will then freeze back, and uh, you'll set the plant back. You'll lose the new growth that was trying, trying to come out. So 
I always wait until they have dropped their leaves, until they're going into their semi-dormant stage, and then you can prune all you want to, and they're not going to come out again until next spring. And and occasionally, even in the spring, whether you prune or not, I've seen things like my boxwood that probably was planted in front of my house a hundred years ago, but uh, I've seen it try to sprout out too early in the spring. We get that late cold, and it just kind of melts and turns brown. So you want to avoid that as far as possible, and that means waiting a little bit later in the fall to do your pruning. Plus, once the leaves are off, it's a little easier to see what you're cutting. Right. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, Bob. Have a great day. Well, congratulations on on your new place, your new tree, whatever it turns out to be. All right. Thanks. thanks. You're welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Wayne is next. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning again, Bob. This is the second time in one weekend. Well, you're welcome. I have people call me a second time in one day, so you're not breaking any rules by doing that. How can I help this time? Well, uh, I've got a native lantana. I literally dug them up off the side of the road. I know that's not not something you're real crazy about, but uh, at least you you said you can probably get better varieties, but I enjoy them. Sure, sure. uh, I've got... uh, uh, the the problem is, and this is probably one of the reasons you, uh, that, that you suggested, uh, I think, twice, uh, mm-hmm. the leaves on them are starting to kind of brown out sure. or get, get uh, uh, I mean, look like we're in the fall. And that's my <laughs> question is, are, 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 is this just due to the, the, the cultivar or the time of the year, or is, it, is there my, most likely a disease that I'm dealing with. No, you're not dealing with the disease. You could be dealing with an insect called lace bug, but I think you're mainly dealing with uh, a situation where Wayne's not watering as often as as the uh, lantana would like to be watered. Um, ah. There, you know, and, and I, I wish that the Extension Service and uh, other people would you know, when they talk about the fact that lantana is a very drought-tolerant plant, I wish they would mention that that comes with a price. If you want them to bloom well, if you want to stay, want them to stay wonderful, beautiful landscape plants, you water them just like you would just about anything else in the landscape. If you stop watering, once they're established, they're not going to die, but they're not going to bloom, and they're going to be looking kind of like you described. They're going to get a little ratty looking a little bit sooner. Ultimately, they probably will fear these back to the ground they do most winters so um i don't think it's anything abnormal and it's not necessarily a bad thing but you could be enjoying you know a prettier plant if you did water and fertilize a little bit more often now here's here's my objection to uh going too heavily into the native species and there are two of them lantana horda lantana camera and then there's a trailing one called lantana montevidensis and um the Montevidensis isn't so true, but the Camera and the Horida, which are the two bigger forms, they go into an alternate cycle. They're going to make a bunch of blooms, then they're going to make seed. Then they're going to make a bunch more blooms, and then they're going to make seed and ripen the seed. The newer varieties, um, you know, in just about all the colors, they don't make seed, and so they just stay in bloom almost constantly. If you get New Gold, if you get uh, Dallas Red, if you get uh, oh, uh, Multi Dwarf uh, is one of my favorites. It's multicolored flower. But I like those because if you care for them, they will literally have flowers on them every day from uh, late spring all the way up until freezing weather. If you treat them 
more as a native plant that you don't water, uh, your blooming will just be off and on. But uh, with your natives that you dig up, and by the way, be careful digging at the roadside because technically that's illegal, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, j- jump know the fence. And, and that that's that's illegal, but the guy that's going to get it after you is the landowner who probably is not going to mind. It's not going to be the Forest Service or, or rather the uh, Parks and Wildlife or whoever. But um, the, the disadvantage to the natives is just that they don't have that continuous bloom. I will also tell you if you have pets or kids or grandkids or anything running around on the natives, the berries are quite toxic. They're not necessarily deadly poisonous, but they are most definitely toxic. So you do want to keep your your dogs, especially puppies that don't know any better, you will want to keep them away from the berries or else you just want to go off with the, out with your pruning shears and periodically cut off those berries as they develop. And by the way, if you do that, you force them back into bloom more quickly. So in my opinion, it's a good idea to cut the berries off uh, anyway. The uh, in turn, you know, I've got a lot of deer around, and I'm out in a rural area, so I don't have the problems you guys have up in the, mm-hmm. the hill country. Uh, I can fix it uh, during deer season, but uh, the, uh, the the do the, the deer know better than to to partake of those berries or not? They do for the most part. In fact, they don't even uh, partake of the foliage unless they're extremely hungry. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, in the near hill country, we are so overpopulated. We've got probably about 15 times as many deer as the land really can support. And uh, those four guys are going to eat anything they find. But where you're in an area with a better controlled population of deer is the way I will put it. Uh, the deer will not, they, they won't touch it. You're not, you're not in a fair oak situation. You're in a South Texas situation and uh, they, they avoid lantanas totally if there's anything else at all for them to forage on. Sure. Very good. Do I have time for one more question or do you need yes, to sir. do anything on the video? Okay. Well, uh, I've been doing a lot of crepe myrtle cuttings and uh, I'm, I'm finally getting to the point where they're, they're, they're surviving the rooting process and I'm getting some decent roots. But uh, I, I just got to that point probably literally about three weeks ago. Okay. And so I, I've got some sticks, what look like sticks to me, uh, that are uh, that, that I know have roots because I've, I've pulled, tugged on them and pulled on them mm-hmm. and checked them, but the leaves yeah. have fallen off. Is it the time of the year, or should yes. I take a chance and just pot them up? Oh, I would definitely pot them up. Um, I'd give them a chance. Are they in perlite? Is that your rooting medium? I start them out in perlite, and then I switch them over. And I heard last week you said that we could actually keep them in perlite and just start fertilizing them and grow yeah. them pretty much till they got up, and I'm going to start doing that. Well, it's, yeah, it, either, either way, but uh, the the reason, you know, that I would, I would definitely go to individual pots if you have put a bunch of cuttings in one container. I tend to, if I've got, you know, my uh, 12, 18-inch tray that I do most of my rooting in, I may put 100 or more cuttings in one tray. But right. because of that, you know, unless I separate them out, those roots, if I left them in there too long, those things would become so intertwined that I would set them back when I had to separate them when I took them out and put them in individual pots. So if you put a lot of cuttings in uh, a relatively small container, be it a pot or a tray or whatever, then it's going to be more important that you get them in their individual pots so they don't get just, you know, just a solid mass of roots that you end up busting up trying to get them apart. Beyond that, no, you can have your choice, leave them in the perlite or move them into soil. Never move them into a big pot. You know, whether it's houseplants or whether it's crepe myrtles, a lot of people 
kill their plants or put them in ill health by continually moving into pots that are too big. A plant wants to move up gradually in pot size. I'd probably pot them up into four inch pots. Next spring I'd probably move them up to one gallon containers. If you want to grow them on in containers beyond that point I would move them into maybe a five gallon container. But never take that little rooted cutting and put it into a great big pot because it's not going to dry out easily and it's going to be, it's going to be difficult just to keep it alive. You always want to start with smaller pots and move them up gradually. I've got about three of them scattered around in a in a four inch pot, so it sounds uh-huh. like I just need to move them into a, individual four inch pots, which I have plenty of. That's Do what I, I would should suggest. I use, should I use a, a soil mix, or should I just just move them over in a small perlite? No, move put them in a good soil mix. Put them in, in any good it. soil mix. And one more thing, if you uh, are around a, a nursery that you deal with regularly, most of us get in a, quite a number of smaller plants that come in a tray. Uh, some of them, some are little three-inch plants, come in either 12 or 18 or even 36 little plants in a tray. And so you've got this wonderful plastic tray with 36 individual little openings that are two inches wide and an inch deep. Uh, I like to stop my, start my cuttings in that because I can put 18 or 36 cuttings into one tray and yet I'm not in a hurry to get them out because they're each one in their own individual little cell as they call it and uh, so I'm not constrained by the you know by, by having to, to repot them when they reach a certain size. I can leave them in there for the entire winter if I want to and I may you know sever it out on one side of the root ball in the spring when I move them on into bigger pots, but uh, most of the nurseries around, uh, if they have them, uh, would just give you these little trays you can root in. We end up throwing a lot of them away. We we recycle all the plastic we can, but the, oh, don't get me started on some of the people that uh, do recycling. <laughs> they get real irritated if you haven't washed everything totally clean, and then it's a question, do I waste the water in order to recycle the tray? But anyway, we love to give them away and let somebody else make that decision, and I'm sure most nurseries feel the same way. Uh, if, I, if I don't run up to San Antonio to your neck of the woods today, I'll see if I can swing over to Beeville next week and grab some of the refuse. I like reusing stuff. So. Hey, you and me both. Well, listen, you uh, feel free to call whenever. I always look forward to talking to you, Wayne. Thank you, sir. Take care. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. You do the same. Thank you. All right. Time for another break. Time for me to talk to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas. And, uh, You know, whether you're in South Texas or whether you're in the Hill Country, the Cedar Eater could do a real good job for you. Doing different things, of course. If you're clearing those senderas, getting ready for hunting season, do you want to have your crews out there moving along and doing a few hundred yards a day, or do you want to call the Cedar Eater and have them do a few miles a day? It's amazing how quickly that machine can move and what a good job it does of cutting the vegetation and grinding it into a nice mulch all at one time. Now, course in south texas your white brush and things it's going to regrow on you in the hill country when the cedar eater cuts off that cedar at ground level it kills the tree so it doesn't come back yeah sure you're going to have some seeds re-sprout but if you want to get your cedar totally under control quickly without bulldozing or burning which i strongly recommend you do i recommend you call the cedar eater because uh, they do it in such an environmentally friendly fashion you don't have to worry about burn bands because they don't do any burning and if the area is real tightly uh, packed 
connect with cedar around good oaks and things, they'll send in a hand crew that uh, will clear the cedar, drag it out in the open, and then the machine just almost instantly turns it into a wonderful mulch. Cedar Eater's been doing it for a lot of years. They have other services as well, but they are good people used by just about everybody that matters, whether it's government agencies, forest service, parks and wildlife, or just, you know, folks like you and me that have some acreage that we need to get rid of the cedar now, just call and give the cedar eater a try. 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this absolutely gorgeous morning. <laughs> I tell you what, people who sleep in this time of year, I know weekends are your opportunity to do that, but you are sure missing a wonderful time of day. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Mark and Donna and Edward will be the next three callers, and Mark is up first. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I have a couple questions. So I have uh, my grass. Uh, I have St. Augustine, and it's in full sun. I've done, I did the compost this spring, and I've uh-huh. done the growing green fertilizer. But it looks like I have an ever-expanding kind of brown patch area, and I initially thought maybe it wasn't enough uh, water, but I've never really had this before. So, and it hasn't been that bad of a drought this summer as we've had in the past. So, I, I don't know what it is, whether it's okay. a brown patch or something else. Well, what I'd like you to do is go out in this area and actually lift up on the St. Augustine runners. Um, if they lift away from the ground relatively easily, I mean, everywhere that there was a blade on that runner, there should be not one but a cluster of roots going down into the soil. If you don't find that, if you just find one wimpy little root or many times no roots at all, what that's going to tell us is that the damage was done by grub worms. And at this point, um, there's really, you don't need to worry about the grubs. They're well beyond their feeding stage. If you want to treat with nematodes just to cut down on the number of June bugs next spring, you can. But remember, your neighbors probably aren't going to do that, so there are going to be plenty of June bugs around whether you whether you treat or not. But if it's grub worms, the most important thing you're going to do is uh, feed uh, again with growing green or any other good organic fertilizer and the areas where you have the worst damage go ahead and put more compost put another half inch layer of compost on those areas and this will help the surrounding grass grow back in and fill those areas in if the runners however are still firmly attached to the soil it, it could be water or it could be one of the fungal diseases. We're getting into the season when we start seeing uh, Rhizoctonia, which many people call brown patch. Uh, if that's the case, you probably want to treat with whole ground cornmeal or another natural fungicide. The nice thing about brown patch, it rarely kills all the grass. You'll have some green through that dead-looking area, which once you get rid of the brown patch, it will come out and fill in that area fairly quickly. So before I can really tell you what it's mandatory for you to do, uh, you need to really check and see what the probable cause of that browning is. Now, uh, do you I have mean, a sprinkler system? It does pull up pretty easy. Yeah, I have a sprinkler system. It does okay. pull up pretty easy, but it seems like it's expanding, and if it were grubs, wouldn't that 
not be expanding since you said well, the grubs are no longer un- an issue? Unfortunately, not not necessarily because the damage is done well before it starts showing up. The grubs cut the roots, but the runners don't just immediately turn brown. It may take, we- take weeks or even months. Uh, in fact, you know, this was pretty much a non-stressful summer for plants right. until August and uh, right. or until really until September. And we've just, and probably the past three or four weeks, that's the only real summer weather we've had and a lot of damaged grass has held on a lot of damaged shrubs have held on until the weather got real stressful and then they start showing the problem so it doesn't really surprise me that you're seeing it seemingly increase now uh, because it, it, okay. it may be six eight weeks ago that the damage actually occurred Got it. Okay. Well, and and regardless of what the problem is, you know, I'd be fertilizing for sure. And right. anywhere you can, I'm sure your yard really look better after you put the compost on this spring. And right. um, if you have the energy, the money, and the time, uh, it certainly doesn't hurt to put a little more compost on in the fall. Okay, great. And then one other quick one. So I have a little area I called you on a few weeks ago, but we ran out of time that I was going to do um, some sod on. It's like four by eight. And I'm not going to be able to get to it until maybe three or four weeks from now. Is there a weather uh, time limit on that? Or No. no. no? Uh, St. Okay. Augustine's out especially. We do it any time you possibly can. Uh, if it's an area that you just want to have St. Augustine sod, then you go out and buy the pieces of it. Just stay away from Raleigh. It's very, very brown patch susceptible, but you know, choose a, another good variety. I find Thomas Stone and Landscape usually has the best sod or Dells. Uh, those are two places that I consistently see pretty good sod. But if these areas aren't too big, consider going out in the areas where you have nice thick grass and just dig up some little four-inch squares. Just, you know, one little you know, four-inch square dug up and transplanted into the open area, you will be amazed how quickly those things will spread out in the spring. And where you've dug up your little uh, plugs, you just, you know, put a shovel full of compost for that area. In a week's time, you'll right. never even know you took it out. And is there a time limit on that for weather or, no. you no. know, as far as doing that? No. Do okay. that. Do that anytime. And one other thing I would suggest to you, Mark, since you do have a sprinkler system, is save um, some little straight-sided containers of some sort, cat food cans, whatever, uh, and set out at some point when you're running your sprinkler system, just take 10 or a dozen of those things and put them in different points around your yard, especially anywhere that your grass isn't looking as good. Let that sprinkler system run its natural, normal cycle, and then go back and look, because I find constantly that you'll find, okay, this area over here is getting a full inch of water, this area over here is only getting a quarter of an inch, and if that's the case, then you need to either adjust some heads, consider adding a head or two, but unfortunately, there's a lot of people installing sprinkler systems that don't know what the heck they're doing, and you end up with very uneven coverage, and then when things get stressful, your yard that used to be all beautiful suddenly has some areas that are showing the stress, and a lot of the time, it's not the fault of anything other than the sprinkler system uh, isn't giving you even coverage. Perfect. Very helpful, Bob. Thanks a lot. It is always a pleasure. You get out and have a great Sunday. Thank you. All right. Thanks.
<laughs> sure. Goodbye. All right. Well, I've got to get one more break in here before the top of the hour. So hang on a minute, Donna, and you'll be up first afterwards. But this is the time I get to talk about Dr. Mark Williamson. And once again, I love talking about good people. Not saying there are a lot of not other good dentists out there, but let me tell you, dental medicine has gone the way of, uh, of so many types of medicine and so many other things, and that it's become what I call corporate. So many folks coming out of dental school, they've run up so much debt, they take the first job that comes along. Lots of times it's with a big corporation where, oh, you're given so many minutes to see a patient, uh, you outsource anything complex like a root canal or an implant, and you know you don't know where those uh, where those implants are coming from or where those crowns are coming from. Might be coming out of China. Well, Dr. Mark Williamson is just the total opposite of that. Dr. Williamson will take the time to get to know you. He is so broadly trained, so skilled. Well, that's why Dr. Staffel invited him into the practice years ago, uh, because he is broadly trained. Because he embraces a number of different therapies, so to speak. He does the sedation dentistry for those who have uh, anxiety about dental procedures, but he can handle virtually any dental problem you have right there in his office, and he's not going to rush through, and anything that he uses in your mouth is going to be made right here in the good old U.S. of A. There is just a huge difference in the level of skill and care that you're going to get from a really good dentist, and uh, that's somebody like Dr. Mark Williamson. I'd like to find out what I'm talking about. His office would always welcome you. Welcome your call. There easy to find. They're out northwest San Antonio, actually just outside of Loop 410 off Cherry Ridge Drive out there. Numbers 341-2569, 210 area area code, of course, but 341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, it's going to be Donna and Edward and Regina, and Donna is up first. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. How are you? I'm off to a good start. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. I have a follow-on question to the lantana problem. Um, I have beautiful lantana. They're gorgeous. They're um, Canyon Gold, I believe it is, or Gold Canyon. And uh, could be. And the leaves dried up, as the gentleman talked about before. Now, I went out there to try to look underneath the leaf to see what it was. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something about a uh, lace bug. Yeah, it's called lace bug. And what you'll see is the leaves that kind of get sort of a salt and pepper look to them. They'll actually have little areas that are dark, little areas that are light. And the buds simply stop, stop developing. The buds, you'll see the buds form, but it just seems like they never open. Very, very common problem on lantana when they're getting a little too dry or when they're undernourished. Well, I found this little bug, and it has a little bit of a shine to its uh, shell or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. the size of a flea. Yeah. And if you try to touch it, it'll hop. That's something different. That's a leaf hopper, but uh, they're closely related, and they could be causing some of that damage. They're, uh, uh, gosh, there's a, you know, kind of a brown one of those, and then there's one that's very yeah. light-colored. But um, they're they're not good guys, but they're not super bad. Uh, if you're finding anything like that, and because Lantana's uh, 
you know, they, they are susceptible if they get it all stressed. I don't think there's anything wrong with periodically spraying them with a little spinosad soap if they start showing any kind of stress at all. And uh, mm-hmm. they would love it if you feed them once a month and water them thoroughly at least once a week, more often than that if they're in containers. And like I say, the lace bugs, the leaf hoppers, they're not a threat to the life of the plant, but they'll sure reduce the uh, number of beautiful flowers you get. So should I do anything to the mulch that surrounds those plants? Do I need to... I wouldn't Nothing? worry about it. If you want to dust a little diatomaceous earth, you can. But uh, just as you're spraying the plants, try to hit the underside of the leaves. You're going to get plenty of the uh, lace of the uh, uh, spinosad soap down in the mulch to take care of anything that's hanging out there. Okay. All right. Well, it was just really odd when I went out there. My feet were covered with these little things, and I thought I'm yeah. being invaded by fleas. Well, there are a lot of fleas out there, fleas. too. Yeah. No, but, these are uh, fleas. Yeah. Uh, Spray some beneficial nematodes around periodically. Anything that is down in the soil or in the mulch layer, beneficial nematodes will take care of with no spraying on your part. And um, it's just easy, cheap, and you will take care of any fleas or fire ants or grubs. or It doesn't hurt earthworms, but any problematic things in the soil, beneficial nematodes will take care of. And they're, they're a good thing to do occasionally, regardless whether you really see a problem or not. And do you have that at your um, garden? We get fresh ones every week. Very good. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for your help. I appreciate you. Thank you. And Edward, you'll be up after the news. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to gardening on a gorgeous Sunday morning. (laughs) It just... It uh, makes you glad to be alive and outside. I hope you're outside. Well, if you're if you're working, good for you. But if you're just sitting out there enjoying your cup of tea or coffee or chai or whatever appeals to you in the morning, it's uh, it's just a gorgeous morning for it. It's going to be a little warm this afternoon, but maybe next week we may be getting back into a little bit more rain, which we certainly need right now. Want to want to keep those burn bands off because if you're like me, you're cutting a lot of cedar and other things that uh, that you may not be able to turn it all into mulch but uh anyway bottom line is get out and enjoy we don't have weather like this every day of the year <laughs> and you're just making a big mistake if you're not out enjoying it while it's happening we're going to talk to donna and let's see you know i believe at this point is actually going to be uh let me check my phone right here and be certain i believe it's going to be edward and regina and ray uh that's where we are and edward is up first good morning edward Good morning. Hey, Good listen, morning. I've, I've got a question on uh, preparing or amending the soil in my garden for the spring. Okay. Now, the, the garden is probably 15 foot by 60 foot. Um, uh-huh. I have not I have not gardened for probably four years due to a cancer issue. So in that time, the garden just overgrew with weeds and compacted the soil um, sure. I need. To, I know you've talked about it before. How to prepare it? I don't have anything growing in there now. I just went okay. through last month with the orange oil and vinegar and and mm-hmm. got rid of the weeds, so it's pretty bare now. Um, I've got the Medina soil activator. I've got molasses. I've got the growing green. I okay. went and got a bag of the uh, azomite. Azomite, very good. Yes, and even uh, some. Uh, fish emulsion or fish fertilizer. Uh-huh. 
What are the steps to... Yeah, I'm, my first question is, uh, why are you going to wait till spring? We can grow as many things in the fall as we can in the spring. And if you like things like broccoli and cauliflower and lettuce and spinach and radishes and beets and turnips and carrots and snow peas, there are a lot of things that you can uh, that you can go ahead and plant. So just keep in mind, you don't have to wait till spring to put a crop in the garden if you're up to it. And I'm so glad you bounced back to the point that you. You feel like working in the garden because that'll that'll keep you healthy better than anything I know of. So that there's no reason that you have to prepare now for spring. But but my suggestions are going to be a little bit different depending on whether you want to plant some things in the fall or where either you definitely plan to wait till spring. If you would sure. like to if you would like to go ahead and you know have the garden ready to plant and and there are things we can plant right now. But uh, begin with putting down things like your azomite, put down some dry molasses. Um, if you're going to plant this fall, go ahead and put some of your fertilizer down, even if uh, maybe a month or six weeks. Go ahead with that growing green and put a thin layer of that pretty much throughout the garden. Uh, then apply your compost on top of that and water it down well. Uh, at this point, you can plant some things immediately if you like, and then other things, like it's too early for spinach, uh, but uh, you'll be able to plant spinach in about another three or four weeks. And by the way, if you're ever in our neighborhood, we have a free guide we'll give you as far as the times to plant. I think Fanix probably does the same thing. Most of your nurseries may have their own version, but uh, swing by here and we'll give you a free copy anytime. But uh, that that's what I would do if I were thinking about planting for the fall. If I am going to wait till next spring before I plant, the only thing I'm going to do differently is I'm not going to put my fertilizer out. I'm going to go ahead and put the azomite, the green sand, the dry molasses, uh, lava sand, whatever other things you're going to, uh, that you have that you want to incorporate. Uh, I would go ahead and put the compost down. I would moisten it mm, at least weekly through the winter months. And then next spring, about four to six weeks before we start planting your warm weather crops, whether it's cucumbers or squash or tomatoes or peppers or, you know, whatever you plant then, you want about four to six weeks in advance of that. That's when you want to go ahead and put your growing green down and maybe put a little bit more compost post on top of it because that lets the fertilizer begin being processed by the microbes so your plants will really be ready to use it but I wouldn't put it down now or a lot of it may have actually been used up it's going to build the soil but if you put your fertilizer on now you're going to have to put it on again in the spring if you wait and put it on in the spring about six weeks ahead of planting you'll be doing everything you need to do and that one application okay. will keep you going. Now, your liquid products, your has to grow, your fish emulsion, those are things that we're going to use after your plants are up and growing. There's not really a lot of reason to put those down beforehand. Everything we really put down to get ready, with the exception of maybe some compost tea, but everything we put down uh, in anticipation of planting is going to be dry by nature. Okay. Okay. Now I'm not uh, up to it yet, so there's not going to be a fall planting. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm going to have to get someone to do this for me. Sure. Um, so so I'll follow those instructions. Now uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a tree trimmer come out and remove a couple of big pecan limbs, mm -hmm. and the the mulch from the chipper. Um, they left it for me. And okay. Is that something I can put on top after yes, I've sir. applied? 
Yes, sir. That's okay. exactly what you do. Put your compost on first. Uh, you do not want to work your trimmings into the soil because they they need to be up on the surface where the microbes that break them down can gather their nitrogen from the air. And um, if you mix them into the soil, they're going to steal the nitrogen from the fertilizer you put down and actually deplete the soil rather than build it. So uh, compost can be worked in. Mulches are great on the surface. And, of course, after a season, they begin breaking down to the point that they can be incorporated next season in the ground. But, hey, you got a lot of free mulch. <laughs> Make good yeah, use absolutely. Of it, but, uh, right, that, that, right. Yeah. I, was, I was hoping to do it this fall, but, uh, no, I'm still not up to it yet. Uh, I say as long as I wake up every morning, it's a good day. So I'm, I'm, I'm good. Well, um, here's the thing about – here, here's one, one thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but about uh, the gardening is – we don't have one time we plant in the fall, one time we plant in the spring. Uh, things like onions, um, we can plant those uh, when they're available, uh, e- December, January. Um, potatoes, we're probably going to plant in early February. So as you get your strength, get your abilities back, doesn't mean you have to wait till tomato season before you get out and plant something. Uh, just every day of the winter, there will be something that you can plant in the garden and uh, uh, I'm sure you're going to want to get back into this, or you're going to have to get back into it gradually. So um, uh, don't, don't again, unless unless the only thing you're interested in are peppers and tomatoes, and you're really missing out, uh, then uh, you you can kind of ease back into it with things that are planted in uh, January, things that are planted in February, and then as we get on into March and April, uh, we've got a lot wider range of things we can plant, and as we get into May, then we can start thinking about okra and the really summertime crops and with five with 15 by 60 you you've got a big garden there so you can have room to grow just about anything you want to grow yeah i mean i've had that garden for years and years and i usually do pretty well um now one question on after i've applied everything the last thing would be putting those uh the pecan um yeah trimmings mulch yes uh, would it help to uh spray that mulch with molasses to help start breaking down that oh, mulch? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. It'll not only help breaking down the mulch, but any of the molasses that uh, goes into the soil is going to benefit the soil microbes as well. So um, by all means do that, and even though you're not planting, at least every week or two, uh, spray the whole area down. Keep it moist. Mother Nature may do that for us, but Mother Nature is very fickle and cannot be counted upon in South Texas. So if uh, if we move into a drier period, be sure you're giving, uh, applying some good water every 10 days to two weeks. I will i will and how thick would that uh, mulch uh optimally be up to three or four inches okay you're going to have okay. to rake it back uh depending on how soon you plant you right. want to rake it back and plant through right. it but you know three four inches uh it cools the soil it supports microbial life it suppresses any weeds that try to come up from seed there's just a lot of good things about having a mulch on the surface of the ground perfect okay that's what i'll do Good luck with it, Edward. It's good to hear from you, and uh, hope you progress rapidly. I sure appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Regina is up next. Good morning, Regina. Uh, Hi, good good morning. morning. Um, I'm going to put you on speakers just for my sake so I can use my two hands to write. Um, Can you hear me okay? Right now I hear you just fine. Great. I I have... um, I'm one of the ladies that goes to, like, it's 
mentioned before, scratch and dent sales and pick up things um, <laughs> like an arrowwood, <laughs> arrowwood viburnum. And I have a couple of them, but I was reading up on it um, before I set it down. Um, this one's by Proven Winners, which was why I was a little tempted by it, uh, because I usually like what they have. But it says, I'm supposed to companion plant it with something if I want it to have these berries. And what what is this plant? Um, the uh, I'm sorry, I thought I said it. Arrowwood viburnum. Okay, or probably arabuki viburnum. Um, if you know, it's one of those things that you will get more berries um, with cross pollination. I didn't. I'm not. I can't think of any viburnums I know of that are actually separate male and female plants. But uh, even even peach trees, things like that, even though each flower has both male and female parts, uh, those parts are not necessarily ripe, so to speak, at the at the same time. So having more than one plant or having a different related variety will certainly increase berry production. Now, most viburnums are, you know, are grown as foliage plants, but some of them do produce an attractive berry. Now, uh, and I agree, the proven winners are usually very superior varieties, but there are also some viburnums, many of the viburnums that like viburnum tinus and some of the ones that produce a lot of berries, they are not as good for, you know, our far southern climate as, uh, you know, some of the, uh, some of the larger leaf, odortissima, mirror leaf, uh, sandanqua, some of the others. So um, right. I would... Well, I've I, heard you say that, so I, I was hoping that I had picked up a, a good one for the area. Um, that was part of my question too, but I I was able to find two of them, uh-huh. so um, I, I I don't know if they need to be of this you know of the same variety or if they needed to be another variety to cross does, pollinate. Doesn't really doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. Normally, two of the same okay. variety, the flowers will mature at slightly different rates. I just have not encountered uh, arrowwood variety. I'll look for that one, but uh, proven winners uh, they have. They've come out with uh, some really good superior plants over the years, but unfortunately mm-hmm. they, they do things uh, for a lot wider area than just us good southern gardeners. And, uh, right. and while, they're, while they're superior varieties, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best thing that you can plant in South Texas because, as I'm sure you know, we're kind of unique down here, both oh. in, our, in our personality <laughs> and in our, plant, uh, in our climates and right. soils. Uh, we're a little right. different than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, keep our independence. Huh? Um, now, this, I have one one other um, bush that I picked up. Kind of, it's not a proven winner, but it's an uh, an Abelia grandiflora. I found uh-huh. two of those two. Um, I, I and I picked it up on a, all of these are on a whim, but um, <clears throat> I, I I don't know if I. First of all, if it's a good one for our area and wonderful one for this um, area, yeah, Grandiflora abelia okay. is outstanding. I've got a couple of them in front of my home that are probably a hundred years old. Uh, who knows how long ago they were planted? Uh, they do require full sun, 
and they okay. do get pretty large. Grandiflora is going to get six to eight feet tall. There are a bunch of other rebelias out there which are more compact. Some of them are bushy. Some of them mm-hmm. actually have colorful foliage, but pretty much across the board, I haven't met an abelia that I didn't like yet. So Grandiflora okay. is uh, is a beautiful plant. It'll bloom most of the hum- summer. Hummingbirds love it. Butterflies don't pay much attention, but the hummingbirds like it very much. But uh, it is something that needs lots of sun, and it will get pretty big for you. It doesn't spread out a lot, but it will definitely grow tall. Okay, so um, it, I, I would have a choice of putting it on the north side, where actually I do get a, a very good north wind, because mm-hmm. I'm in a cul-de-sac that just basically um, brings in the north wind. To, to, um, north wind's, north wind's not going to be a problem. Side. Yeah, Abelia is going to be totally cold hardy. Uh, the Abelias okay. didn't didn't lose a leaf in the cold of last winter. But the north side typically is not as sunny as the south side. So just check this right. area and be sure that it does get good bright sunlight uh, all year long. Okay, okay. And if it's in a pot where the roots, if it's gotten basically. Um, just lots of circling, uh, well, not circling, but the the roots in the pot, uh, uh-huh. it's a good three-gallon pot maybe, uh, just fluff it out and set it in. I can plant that any time, can't I? You can plant that any time. <laughs> if it were mine, I would slice down one side of the root ball, just kind of go down the side. Uh, I'd use a, like a sheetrock knife or something like that with about a three-quarter inch blade, and I'll just go down one side of the root ball and slice down there because that's going to make the roots branch and thicken up. I think that's better than just setting the root ball directly into the soil, and I definitely would give it a good watering before you plant it and after you plant it as well. Yes. Okay, well, thank you for that. Then on this arrowwood viburnum, um, I guess if I was using it for um, even a little bit of a, a barrier to something or just uh, coverage to a building, I'd be better with that abelia then. Well, if it's if it's partial shade, you definitely would be better with the viburnum. If it's bright sun, you might be better with the abelia. Okay. Thank you so much for your help. You keep, you keep rescuing those plants, and you call me when you have <laughs> questions, and I'll try to have answers for you. I appreciate it, Regina. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, uh, let's pause for a moment and uh, talk about our friends over at Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. Uh, Mark, this week wanted me to emphasize that they do still have plenty of crepe myrtles uh, over there. If you're looking for some of the varieties, they've got everything from little miniatures to the great big ones. They've also gotten a pretty good supply of citrus. They've gotten their first uh, supply of the stone fruits like peaches and plums. Uh, they also have pears and apples and apr- I don't know about apricots, but uh, uh, lots of nectarines and other citrus have come in as well. So if you're thinking of starting an orchard of any sort, uh, be a great time to go see Fanix while the selection's really good. Be later on the bare root trees, but these are established trees in containers so you're actually getting about a year ahead uh, selecting those plants and putting them out now they also have a good selection of the plants that qualify for the saws rebate program Uh, they have uh, gotten in their fall vegetables lots of different uh, things that can go into the vegetable garden this time of year and of course you know they've got all the organic fertilizers and things that you need from ladybug for for, not from ladybug but from uh, medina and from uh, nature's creation 
Fox Farms, all those good folks. Uh, Espoma, they have a good line of fertilizers, organic. And uh, Fanix just has all those good things you need for gardening. Plus, they've got the Traeger pellet grills. Man, what an easy way that is to get into grilling out of doors. And, of course, that Eagle 56-volt lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment. You just have to try it to appreciate it. If you're one of these people that enjoys getting up early on Saturday or Sunday morning and getting outside, believe me, your neighbors will thank you for going with battery-powered equipment instead of starting up that old gasoline-powered edger or trimmer or whatever else. Uh, plus, you just should be incredibly amazed at the power that comes from the battery-powered equipment these days. That Eagle line's a, a good line to check out. So many reasons to go see Fanic. They're open seven days a week right over on Home Green Road where they've been for over 80 years now. If you want to check them out online, it's Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. And my next two callers are Ray and Gary. Ray is up first. Good morning, Ray. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I'm over here in Del Rio. Okay. And I've got some property. It's two acres, actually, that I'm going to clear out. And okay. it's Wiesatch, Hackberry, and uh, Mesquite. Uh-huh. Do I need to uproot them, or can I just get a, one of those, like, that cedar eater mulchers? Um, we satch and mesquite especially are going to come back. Um, okay. if you know, the, the least labor intensive thing is to root plow. If you are able, if you have the equipment to root plow it and get it up, um, you will not have nearly as much regrowth as, uh, you know, as, as you will just cutting them off, um, in a limited area. Uh, or where you where they're not just real thick, or in my case, I'm so rocky there are areas that I really can't plow. What I do, and it's not organic, but it's not real bad for the soil, is when I cut off and mesquite's the main thing. I'm too far north for much wheatsatch, but uh, I will, you know, drench that stump with a little bit of just straight old diesel fuel. Um, I will follow it up in a, three or four weeks. I'll go back and put some molasses, either liquid or dry, on it because molasses stimulates the microbes that totally clean up the diesel. But uh, the diesel's a pretty good stump killer, and of course I don't ever do it near a well or any you know creeks or streams or anything like that. But uh, the, the really nasty brush killers, which I don't recommend, if you read, they recommend that you re- mix diesel with them, and I personally think the diesel is all you need. So areas that it's you know that it's hard to uh get in there with a tractor to root plow or something like that that's that is a definite possibility one other thing that i will tell you is if you have a few big mesquites out there uh, the mesquite is an interesting tree in that it releases a substance from its roots that keep the seeds from sprouting so if you've got a field with a handful of big mesquites probably just want to leave them alone because that's probably all you're ever going to have if you go in and remove those trees then everywhere you've got seeds, you're going to have that thorny, nasty, you know, really brush-like mesquite coming up. And unfortunately, a lot of South Texas ranchers have made the mistake of clearing out their big trees, and then you've got a secondary problem that's a whole lot worse than what the bigger trees started with. But uh, if you're clearing to where you actually plan to plow and plant, then everything pretty much has to go. But where you're just grazing it, leave the big guys alone and take out the little ones. Perfect. 
Uh, yeah, it's mainly mainly we search. Is the, is the yeah, we, we satch while it's beautiful in the spring. It's a pain in the <laughs> in the rest of the year. <laughs> but root plowing, it's, it's easier. Yeah, it's easier to root plow we satch than it is mesquite to begin with. So, uh, yeah. And they were nice and brown after the freeze. Uh-huh, and you thought <laughs> they were dead and my problem and yeah. solved. <laughs> and now 10% of them are dead, 90% of them are back with a uh, vengeance. You, you nailed it. <laughs> yes, sir. I've, okay. I, I like I say I don't. The ones in my area died in the freeze a few years ago, but uh, you get very much further south. And like I say, if it's uh, just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, and say occasional we it's just it's pretty thing in the spring. One of the first things to flower in the spring. But uh, uh, the man who's trying to make a living off of his land uh, doesn't, doesn't view it exactly the same way. Uh, well, the mesquite tells me when it's time to plant. <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> Although I trust the pecans more than I trust the mesquite anymore. I've seen mesquite well, fooled a few times I've had over the past number of years. <laughs> well, it's funny because the one that's right outside, uh, right next to my driveway, didn't bloom, mm-hmm. and and it usually does around uh, around late January, early February, and it didn't uh-huh. bloom until after the freeze. There <laughs> you go. Okay. It's <laughs> <now>. <laughs> and hopefully, you paid attention. <laughs> Ants and the dry molasses. Do you just spread that out with a with a regular spreader? Um, you can do it depending on the area. You can put it out with a regular spreader. You can put it out with one of these little handheld little crank type spreaders if it's in a small area. Uh, if you're buying anything other than Nature's Creation, and I think Nature's Guide uh, still makes it, those folks have some kind of magic they work and your dry molasses doesn't clump or cake or get hard. But most brands of dry molasses, boy, put them out the day you get them or they will turn into something you could build a skyscraper out of. Okay, that's what I was getting ready to do right now. Good. Uh, air layering, uh, a Mexican lime and a mountain laurel. Is it too late to do that right now? It, uh, if they're growing in the ground, yeah, it's getting a little too cool. If it's something that you have in a warm greenhouse or something, you could probably do it. But things in the landscape, yeah, we've just, uh, by the time we get to 1st of October, which is only four days away, five days yeah. away, something like that, uh, pretty late for doing air layers. Now, if uh, if these trees have limbs that are very close to the ground, you can do what we call a simple layer. And that is where you would take a knife and you know scrape a little bit of cut a little bit of the bark off the bottom of the limb then bend a coat hanger or something into a big u pin that limb to the ground and put a good shovel full or two of uh, soil over the top of it and uh if if the soil stays warm then it probably will go ahead and root and you form a layer over the winter months but up on the limbs where we do our air layers no i'm i'm gonna wait till spring to be doing that okay and what medium I just use a moist sphagnum moss. You know, you just slice the uh, the bark or separate the bark from the uh, xylem underneath, and you just take a handful of the long-fibered sphagnum, moisten it thoroughly, wrap that around the cut area, and then tie that up uh, with either uh, plastic wrap or with uh, aluminum foil. I like aluminum foil because you can crimp the ends of it so easily, and uh, you can do your layers much more quickly. Okay. I can uh, I can soak that with some garlic juice to help it along, or a soil activator or something. Absolutely, one or both. Okay, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. You enjoy, Ray. Thanks for the call this morning. You bet. Goodbye. All right, uh, Gary. I need to get a break in here so we don't get too far behind, and uh, then you will be up next. 
excuse me, I get to uh, I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems at this point, and I of course love doing that. I've had a Southwest Roofing System on my home for a lot of years now. Never called them one single time for a problem. And my roof's complex: three chimneys, balcony around three sides upstairs. But I tell you, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems did a beautiful job, and I have not called them back for a problem a single time. They not only reinstalled my lightning rods; they called the company that originally put the lightning rods in and said, "Hey, come check these and be sure that we did it correctly." Southwest Metal Roofing Systems they they are they're just the best of the best when it comes to putting on the roof that's going to last you a lifetime. That's why they give you the best warranty in the industry. We've had their roof on uh, our Shades of Green here for, I guess, close to 10 years now. It stood up to baseball-sized hail with no, not even cosmetic damage on it. And uh, this is after, before we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, we paid somebody else to put a metal roof on, paid them a lot of money. Well, that roof immediately started rusting out. They wouldn't stand behind the warranty. And by that time, Unfortunately, we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and we've loved our roof ever since then. Only time we've called them, we had a big truck back into the roof at one point. And yes, they did have to come out and replace a couple of panels then. But while your roof's going to stand up to hail and wind, it won't stand up to a big box truck, I can tell you that. If you have a lot of choices, too, if you don't like bright standing seam metal, there are a lot of colors you can choose among. There are actually different looks. If you want a roof that looks like slate or ceramic tile or shake shingles, well, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems can help you with those, and it's a roof that is still lightweight, so you don't have to build all that extra structure in, but you can still look like you've got a beautiful tile roof on your home. Check it out. See what I'm talking about. Give them a call, 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for the best roof, the most energy-efficient roof in the business, a roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We've got Gary and then two gentlemen named Mike on. We'll figure out how to tell them apart in a minute. But uh, I know we start with Gary, so good morning, Gary. Morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. How about you? Doing good. Hey, I'm trying to transplant some twisted yucca I, I need some advice i've only had one out of four take root so i was looking for some advice well you're 25 percent ahead of most people uh twist leaf yucca is is hard to transplant it just you know they put out um they they put out those sort of underground stems and then they'll put up a new head the best thing i can tell you is you know if you're if you're out there looking at three beautiful yuccas uh, fairly close together and then you've got one that's a little looks a little big and scraggly the one that you want to transplant is the big and scraggly one because uh the smaller ones just haven't had time to develop much of a root system, and most of them don't survive very well. The bigger one that they grew off of may be old and ugly, but it's got a pretty good root system, and uh, you will transplant it, and it will look better, and then it will put on some new growth that will be absolutely beautiful. But Twistleaf Yucca is just, it's it's tough to grow from the plants and like i say most people make the mistake of going with the uh, the newer fresher looking plants but unfortunately those guys haven't really established much of a root system yet and consequently don't transplant well does that make sense okay yeah that and that's what i've been doing i've been getting a younger one so uh i'll yeah. uh i'll look for an older one then and and, and, and try that then so uh 
I think you'll have uh, close. I'll, I'll say you probably have eighty-five percent luck, where twenty-five uh, percent is is you not not bad. <laughs> I, I've transplanted six or eight of them before I knew what I was doing and had every single one of them die. But uh, once I figured that out, you'd be a lot more successful. Well, and the one that did take off, it had a you know had a stem coming up with you know fixing the bloom, and then the, the deer uh-huh. ate the ate the you know the the stem you know so uh, and, it, once that once that flowers. Would you be able to get some seeds from that and try to start something? I I say this jokingly, but if the deer have eaten the flowers, no, because you've got to have the seed pod, of course. But, uh, yes, you can get, uh, and it makes uh, sort of an interesting seed pod, uh, sort of three-lobed, as I recall. And, uh, yes, if you can leave it on till maturity, once it turns brown, um, go ahead and harvest it, open it up. The seed will be size of peppercorns, and you can most definitely uh, grow new plants from that Uh, but like you uh, I'm in the hill country with lots of deer and the deer do love that they love the new vegetation and they love that bloom spike so uh, if you see one starting to put on a bloom spike put on a you know tomato cage or something other they can't get their head through uh, around it or they'll eat it off before it has a chance to make seed many times they actually wait until the flowers open but then they eat them before they have a chance to make a seed pod so um, you've, you've got to try to let that seed pod come to maturity on the plant but harvest it before it breaks open on its own Okay, and what about a certain time of year to do all this? Uh, well, springing, you know, you're always going to get most of your blooms um, in in spring. So, uh, as far as collecting seeds, seeds usually going to be right by early summer. As far as digging and transplanting, you want to do it at the time of year that is least stressful for the plant, and that's going to be during the cool months. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be cold, but if I had to pick the ideal time, it would be sometime between uh, Halloween and Valentine's Day. Okay, sounds great. Great information. I appreciate it. You good luck with it. Let me know how you do with it, Gary. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Um, yeah, I think we can take one more call before we take a break. When Don pushes the button back at the station, one of you two gentlemen named Mike, you're going to hear a change in volume. You're going to hear a little bit of background noise. Well, then you're the Mike that I'm talking to. Good morning. Good morning, morning Mike. Bob. How's it going today? I, it's going well. It's an absolutely beautiful day. Man, if there was a way I could bust this window out and drag this broadcast system outside, I'd be doing it because it's just this This is a Chamber of Commerce weather, but let's don't tell everybody around the country how nice it is. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, I've got a couple of questions. I'm, I'm, I've got a problem with I think is a, a hackberry tree. This thing, whatever the tree is, it's putting out. I don't want to know. I don't. I can't say if it's a black mold or not. But there's there's stuff coming out of the air and settling on some of our plants. And <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm wondering is there a, a wash or anything okay. that I can make up? Okay. Well, here here's the deal. Uh, it, the hackberry's not doing that. But hackberries, along with uh, pecans especially and crepe myrtles especially, this time of year, they get a lot of aphids on them. Those aphids, 
no nice way to put it. They poop out a sugary material, and it's relatively clear, and it's quite sticky. And it will get all over your car. It will get all over your outdoor lawn, um, you know, furniture and things like that. And it doesn't come out black. But because it's so high in sugar, you very shortly after that, you will have a black mold growing on the aphid poop is basically what's happening. And uh, you can wash it off. I mean, soap and water um, will will take it off. But it's not the tree. It's just, uh, well, it is a tree and that it's a type of tree that attracts aphids. But it's not the tree itself that's uh, creating the problem. Um, you can always, of course, this year there haven't been any ladybugs available because of environmental problems. They didn't ship anything out of California. But anything you can do to control the aphids, you could release lace wings. Uh, if it's a big tree, you probably don't even want to think about spraying. But uh, the good news is that it passes fairly quickly. Aphid season is fairly short, and you will avoid the black if you just simply wash the excrement off before the mold has a chance to grow. Yeah, this this is the first year we've seen any of that. Typically, our crepe myrtles are the are the culprits yep. of putting <laughs> uh, putting that sort of thing out, and you know they're pretty bad this year too. Well, <laughs> the the aphids are, near. yeah. The, the aphids don't don't really discriminate. I think crepe myrtles and ha- and pecans are their number one choice. But uh, this year, I've seen more aphids on hackberries. I, I normally see a few, but boy, this year the aphids are thick on the hackberries. I think the cold winter unfortunately killed off a lot of their natural predators, so there are just more aphids out in the environment than there are most years. But I, when I think of some of the other problems we could have, I'll put up with a few aphids. Oh, I hear you. I hear you there. Another question, Bob. This uh, the area that we would like to do this in is out in Stone Oak. Uh, mm-hmm. What we're wanting is a a nice tree, long lived and reasonably fast growing, and we certainly want to stay away from a red oak simply because of you know water problems and things that go on. What what is your recommendation for a good tree out in that area? Well, I'd stay away from a red oak because of oak wilt. I Red oaks actually okay. prefer it drier. Uh, red oaks are one of your best trees when it comes to uh, water issues. Uh, fastest growing tree is going to be a sycamore, and it can be a bit of a water hog. So uh, I probably would be looking at cedar elm. Uh, cedar elm is quite cold hardy, relatively fast growing, and uh, just a very good tree in our shallow rocky soils. Uh, you could also look at uh, bur oak, which is going to be a magnificent, you know, big oak tree. It has acorns uh, almost the size of a golf ball. Don't don't put oh, your yeah. lawn chair <laughs> underneath them; they'd knock you out when, when the acorns fall. But uh, bur oak is it's moderate in its growth rate. I mean, if you'll water and fertilize, it actually grows moderately quickly. But uh, those would probably be my top two choices: would be either bur oak or cedar elm. Gotcha, gotcha. I happened to pick up the other day some of the Medina uh, Humate. Uh-huh. Dry Humate and or Liquid I, Humate? The Liquid Humate. Okay. Very and good. I'm, and I am wondering, how should that be applied? Should that be applied with uh, one of these dosing uh, units uh, that you dial up the uh, the proper setting? And how much would you recommend 
I'd, I'd follow the instructions, which is generally going to be about uh, one to two ounces per gallon. You can use it however it's convenient for you. Remember that it is a product that is not really in solution. The humates don't dissolve, but they're very, very fine. Uh, I'm sure Stewart's uh, put them through his uh, air cyclone that gets them down to the size of dust, which means they stay in suspension pretty well. So you can use any kind of sprayer, but shake that sh sprayer periodically. One of the little uh, uh, siphoning units that you uh, screw onto the end of the hose is certainly the fastest and easiest way to put it out. But if you have a limited area, you can do it with a watering can. Um, I, I don't think it'll work as well with one of the siphon mixers, but the uh, the units, uh, the little hose-in sprayers, uh, it works fine in there. What I would do if I, and, and follow me on this, it's not not tough concept, but... Um, Let's say we want to put it out at one tablespoon per gallon. I'm going to dilute it 50-50 with water just go, so it will go through the sprayer easier, and then I'm going to set it for two tablespoons. If it still seems too thick, I'm going to add uh, like three three parts water to one part dry humate or one part liquid humate and then I'm going to set the sprayer on four tablespoons per gallon so in any event I'm getting one tablespoon of the concentrate going out but I can dilute it down and set the sprayer for a higher mixing rate and that simply helps it go through the sprayer better because it's more diluted does that make sense right yes without clogging the pickup exactly and one thing you can do, most of these hose-in sprayers have a little kind of a screen down on the bottom. You can pop that off. Uh, the, the material in uh, Medina's product especially is finely uh, ground enough that it will go through the sprayer. And if that little, uh, that little coiled wire in the bottom of the uptake tube seems to be slowing it down too much, pop that off. Just rinse it good when you get through spraying. If you do get any clogging, you can always just kind of backwash it. You can force some water back through it and clear it out pretty easily. Gotcha. And and just just to confirm, I'm I'm assuming this humate is one of the very best things you can do to help improve the soil structure or take up for your plants, isn't it? It's one of the best things you can do, but it is not an overnight product. Uh, it no, works, no, I, sure. yeah, yeah. works with the microbes in the soil, and it's absolutely outstanding. It brings a lot of energy to the soil because the high-energy carbon bonds that are in the humate. Uh, it doesn't bring a lot of microbial life in and of itself, but it creates a good environment for that microbial life to thrive, and uh, it's absolutely outstanding, whether it's your lawn or your vegetable garden or anywhere you're using it. It's, it's a very good product. Well, that is good to hear. Well, I'll tell you what, you've uh, you've hooked me up really well this morning. <laughs> well, I've made some work for you, but it's a beautiful morning to get out and do it, Mike. So you have fun at it, and uh, call me if you have more questions. All right. Take care. Have a great day. You do the same. All right. Let me get my last break of the hour out of the way, and then we'll talk with the other Mike. I get to talk to you about Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly. Sam could probably give a better lecture than I can on dry humates and microbial life because his specialty is soil health. And uh, it's just natural that if your soil's healthy, you're going to have fewer problems with your plants. And uh, Sam's been doing this for 30 years. I mean, everything he does is organic. He works at combating diseases and insects through natural solutions and building your soil so that you have fewer problems to begin with. 
You know, he's not the guy that's going to plant your trees or mow your grass for you, but he is the fellow who can really help you diagnose problems in your landscape and take steps to both uh, cure them or prevent them. And again, everything Sam does is 100% organic. Uh, he sets up a program, if you like, where he can visit on a monthly basis or however often you like, analyze the issues that are occurring in your landscape. And there are many things like compost tea that he can take care of himself. There are other things that he may recommend that you do. Check out his website, Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Take a look at the reviews and all the pictures of the beautiful landscape that he's helped people create and maintain. If you think it's for you, call him for a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges in advance. And uh, we just have a lot of people coming through our nursery just sing his praises. Uh, one of them calls him Saint Sam because she says he's done so much to create a just a beautiful, beautiful uh, landscape for her. Sam Sitterly is his name. The name of his company is Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Golly, we're down to less than a minute here before the top of the hour news. So uh, Nathan and Kathy and James, hold on. You guys will be the next three callers. Do want to remind you there's things that you could be planting in the vegetable garden if you're looking for fun things to do today, like broccoli and cauliflower, like most of your leafy greens, uh, mustard and spin- uh, it's too early for spinach, but mustard and uh, collards and you know Swiss chard, those are all things that can go in the ground right now. Do get that soil ready for spinach. It's one of my favorite wintertime crops, and uh, let me tell you, it'll take off and grow a lot faster if your soil's ready. So that means putting down some fertilizer, putting down some compost, maybe some other things like azomite and green sand if you just want to really, really maximize uh, the benefits to your soil. So don't let this day go by. Lots of wintertime flowers you can plant too, like petunias and snapdragons and uh, too early for pansies, but certainly uh, the dianthus. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, let's get back to gardening on this beautiful Sunday morning out there. It looks like it's going to be Nathan, Kathy, and James from our next three callers. And uh, Nathan is up first. Good morning, Nathan. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Um, good morning. I uh, listen to your show every weekend. I really enjoy uh, it. Appreciate that. Thank you. So I live down in Livonia. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Um, we have a lot of butterflies that just kind of come across a lot every yes, day. And yes, sir. I was thinking, they just kind of go straight across. You know, <laughs> I, they, don't, they don't have anything to on a lot that they're interested in. So sure. I was thinking, well, I should, I should plant something that, that they would like to have. So um, my father-in-law sent me a bunch of um, milkweed pods. Uh-huh. And I was thinking of planting those. I don't know if they would work. They're from, uh, he's from Wisconsin, so uh, they yeah. sent me a bunch of milkweed pods like, in a big box. I don't know if they're different up there than they are here. But Well, yeah, um, they, they are different in Wisconsin. Nothing wrong with planting them. As long as you've got them, plant them. It's, what you're getting there probably technically is, technically is called Asclepius tuberosa, and it's one that the monarchs absolutely love. 
and it starts out growing okay here, but in a hot, humid summer, uh, it just it, it just tends to rot. So I, I wouldn't okay. hesitate to plant them now, but I sure wouldn't build your whole butterfly garden around that. There are yeah. southern yeah, there's southern milkweeds that uh, that you know you might have a friend who has a place out in the country give you a pod from uh, one of them they call antelope horns. Uh, there is a beautiful plant. It'll give you beautiful flowers, and butterflies love it as well. That is called Mexican milkweed, Sclepius trevasica, and it has an orange and yellow flower and uh, that's again a lot of different butterflies but especially the monarchs like that one another of my favorites there is one called greggs g-r-e-g-g apostrophe s uh, two g's old german naturalist but greggs mist flower it has uh, again it's a beautiful plant has a little cluster of lavender purple blooms and the the butterflies just flock to that literally uh, and that's probably my second favorite right behind the Mexican milkweed as far as things that the uh, butterflies really like. Now, beyond that, you can plant zinnias. You can plant z- uh, the uh, uh, lantanas are very popular with the butterflies. In fact, you know, there are lots of lists out there. You can probably find a list online for butterfly gardening if you ever over our way and we're kind of the opposite side of town from Laverne. We're over near the quarry in San Antonio. But we have a list we've made up of the ones that we see that the butterflies like best. And there's some good native plants out there too, the so-called frostweed or verbesnia. Um, it's something that grows in the shade, but boy, it grows all over my ranch, and the butterflies are just thick on it this time of year. There's some vines that they like, like uh, Queen's Crown. Uh, the so-called cypress vines tend to bring in a lot of butterflies. Uh, there's they, just a lot of different things that you could be planting, Nathan. But uh, the two that I would focus on are the milkweeds that are do well in San Antonio. Now, now. Plant the seeds that they sent you because uh, those are going to do well, but they're not going to be good year after year after year. If you plant the Mexican milkweed and plant uh, especially the Greg's Mist Flower, those are two that should last years for you. Okay. is What's the best time to plant, like the you said, the Mexican milkweed and the Greg's? Well, yeah. Uh, that, you know, my, my joking answer is always last year. <laughs> that would be the best time <laughs> yeah. to have planted it. But uh, the Greg's Mist Flower, you can put out right now. The uh, Mexican Milkweed, we just don't know how cold the winter is going to be uh, or how much time it's going to have to make seeds. So I definitely would think about putting out the, Mex- the uh, Greg's Mist Flower now, uh, but you would definitely wait till spring to plant things like your zinnias and probably your lantanas. The Mexican Milkweed... Um, if it were me, I would plant it, knowing that if it freezes, I'll get another one next spring. But if you if if you want to be a hundred percent sure, you'd need to hold off till next spring on the Mexican milkweed. I think it probably has a good chance to get well enough established before it gets cold, uh, get established in bloom, and maybe even make some more seeds so you have more plants of it next year. Okay, uh, so uh, where I'm at, it's mostly sand. I mean, so is that 
that's good. Is that okay for the Mexican milkweed? Oh, yeah, it, yeah, all of them are going to grow. How much water does it take as well? It, I know they need full sunlight, but yeah, you're exactly right. They need uh, they need a lot of sun. You just want to water uh, when they're dry on the surface. You know, as you build up your soil, as you you know increase the amount of organic material in there, you won't have to worry as about uh, watering as often. But uh, I would say the milkweed is one of your better drought tolerant plants but you're going to be watering you're probably going to be watering uh every few days when you set it out uh but um again whether you do it now whether you do it in the spring get it planted early enough that it will be well established before the real summer's heat hits and uh, they'll do fine in the sand and if you're using organic fertilizers uh, you're going to gradually build more and more organic material in the soil which is just going to make things grow better and better Okay, well, thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your call this morning. Good luck with it, and you call me anytime you have questions. Yes, sir. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Kathy's up next. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have a question. Uh, I was given, uh, I guess it's uh, about 10 years ago from my uh, past landlord, a palm, and he called it an elephant palm. Uh, I thought it was just a, uh, uh, I can't even think what I thought it was. <laughs> well, regular... I have to say, yeah, I've not heard of an elephant palm. No, Tell me what it looks it, like. It, okay, well, I hadn't either. But uh, anyway, uh, it's a palm, it's in a pot. Uh, mm-hmm. I repotted it when uh, we moved here. I live in New Braunfels now, uh-huh. and uh, but uh, it's it's like seven foot tall now. It was okay. two foot, uh, and it, we have to take it in every winter. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's uh, in a pretty good sized pot, but the dirt, the soil level from the top of the pot is probably four inches from the top, and that's okay. just dirt down to the root. Uh-huh. I mean, down to the bottom of the palm okay. and uh, the root ball, I guess you'd call it. Anyway, uh, I was wondering, instead of putting in a bigger pot, because this thing's getting pretty heavy to take in uh-huh. and out, yeah. is, uh, can, I, can we lift that palm out of this pot, put yeah. dirt yeah. down in the bottom, and then put, put the back. palm back, put then it back put the... in the same pot? Right, and then just filling around the edges. That would be exactly yeah, what yeah. I would suggest you do, Kathy. Um, does it have kind of a big bulbous growth at the base, and then it has kind of long, wispy leaves that kind of come long, out in all directions? Long, long, like the longest hair in the world. <laughs> okay. I think, uh, you know, that's probably just another name for what people call the ponytail palm. Or... Well, that's what I said it was. That's the yeah. word I was trying to think of. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's probably what it is, and uh, it will have to. It'll always have to have winter protection. They never become winter hardy, and when right. you have and it inside for the, I can't cover it. So yeah, 
Yeah, no, you're going to have to bring it in. But it can grow very large in a relatively small pot. We have a couple of them. Uh, one of them belonged to my business partner's mother. The other belongs to her. And these things are about seven or eight feet tall, and yet they're in right. relatively small pots. And the, that bulbous base is like 15 inches across. Biggest one I ever saw, that bulb was about four feet across. But that was down in uh, oh outside of uh, was outside of Brownsville where the guy did have it growing in his yard. But um, there a wonderful plant and uh, you just need to be sure when you have it inside to give it lots of sunlight in nature they, get, they grow they get sun. yeah they well in nature they're actually grow in the desert down in northeastern mexico but wow. water it really really thoroughly when you water and then when it's good and dry on the surface water again feed it with the same has to grow that you'd use on the rest of your plants and uh I, again these these two that i'm speaking of i know the Ladies in question uh, grew for over 25 years, so uh, they can live a long, long time. They have very few problems so long as they get enough light. Okay. Uh, around the edges of this pot, when it starts drying out, uh, it comes away from the side of the pot. Right. So I'm going to try and, you know, of course, put dirt on the sides of it, too. But is there something I could do with, or should I do with the, uh, dirt that's in there already to to break not that really. up or just not leave really it alone. because when you lift it up you're going to find that it's pretty much solid roots you would probably want to try to water before that soil root ball actually starts to shrink that's what it's doing when the soil gets real dry it's shrinking away from the side of the pot and the ponytail will tolerate that but it would be happier if you would uh, try to water a little more often to keep that from happening i guess the best example i can give you is if we looked at one that had a had a bulb on it that was five inches in diameter in the desert that one probably took 30 years to get that big in a greenhouse we could grow it that big in about three or four years where we were watching okay. the watering and fertilizing he, he had so. it he had it uh this is a baby off a mother that he had and uh-huh. his dogs got in the greenhouse and was tearing it up that's why he gave me the baby <laughs> well hey it was a, a generous gift because they're a uh, they're very interesting plant and uh very easy to grow and um uh, you know, they're, we get them a lot of times grown from seed. I think we've got them. They're only about three inches tall, but, uh, wow. you, you can get them at all different sizes and, uh, they'll be, uh, they'll be with you for a long time. Okay. Well, I so appreciate your help on this. It's always a pleasure, Kathy. I appreciate the call this morning and, uh, you enjoy it. I think you'll find more people will know it by the name ponytail palm than elephant well, palm. That's but, uh, what- that's what I had called it. I don't know well, where he came up with elephant, but whatever. Well, you're, we won't tell him, but you're smarter than he is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you enjoy. You, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. Okay. Um, goodbye. All right, James, let me get a break in here. You will be up next. And uh, Don, no lives here, so run the recordings, and we'll be right back to gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Back to the phone lines. Can be James and Kay and Judy. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. I'm out here gardening a couple of hundred chili patines. Underneath the oak tree with a slingshot. <laughs> Those birds do love them, don't they? 
Well, I don't shoot at the redbirds, but I I, tr- I try to aim at the mockingbirds, but I haven't never hit one yet. So, <laughs> well, if you if it whizzes by close enough to them, then uh, then it'll probably encourage them to move along. That's the that's what I'm hoping on, you know. Put the fear yeah. in them. Well, it's uh, and of course, you know, that's the, the the peppers. That's the problem with birds is no matter how hot the pepper, the birds can't taste the heat. So they sit out there and just eat away. And uh, uh, it's real interesting. We had a friend up in uh, uh, New Braunfels who's actually come out with a line of bird seed. He calls fiery hot. And uh, he's put so much pepper oil on that that the squirrels and the raccoons won't go anywhere near it. But the birds just sit there and eat it all day long because uh, they don't taste the heat. So uh, I, I I follow your reasoning there. And if you're looking at trying to collect chili pekin seed, uh, you're going to have to keep the birds away from them until they're good and ripe. Well, I sell these down at the, you know, down at the feed store and really? i wanted a uh-huh. few chilies on there so the customers would you know see the nice chilies on them i didn't want the birds to get them all that's right um, i called um with a question we we're planting carrots over on the new berlin farm because uh-huh. that's the sandy loam and we've got the uh the micro jet sprinklers man those things are nice and uh we just planted carrots uh-huh in one of the beds, uh, before we got the irrigating, there's a <clears throat> excuse me, there's a ground nesting wasp, and when they come out of there, they're they're really fierce looking little buggers. Oh, and they will they they'll give you a pretty powerful wallop too. In fact, uh, a lot of people call them ground hornets. They're no fun if they come after you. Okay, that was the question. Um, my the grower out there said uh you know he he just saw it come out and then he just left you know because it was it looked pretty bad and i didn't know if they were um you know how dangerous they were so i wanted to get some information from you well there there are a bunch of different ones uh out there james and some of them um you know there are a lot of different wasps and even bees that dwell in the ground and you know if it looks like a black wasp or kind of a black and orange wasp they're not going to come after you they um they're everything from uh, cicada killers which you know would have the potential to sting you uh but they don't uh there's another one that paralyzes spiders and uh you know puts them in an underground burrow uh and what they do they you know then they lay their egg and uh that little grub that eventually turns into a new wasp just moves from spider to spider you know as it grows and that kind aren't any problem to you and if they if if you find a bunch of them you want to get rid of them you just flood them with water and they'll move elsewhere the one though that really can get you uh it looks like a little yellow jacket in fact some people mistake them for the paper wasp yellow jacket and uh um, but they're they're distinctly different to a to a real uh, nature oriented guy like you. But those things will come out uh, usually not one at a time, but they'll come out a bunch at a time, and they will sting and they will sting repeatedly. In fact, they are the main reason that uh, there's company out there that made like a fogger that can go on the roll bar on your tractor. So that if you uh, if you hit a nest of these things or or even it's it's also made for the Africanized bees. But you pull this little thing and it kind of 
coat you with an insecticide that's safe for you but it's bad for the wasps. I tell you, last time I hit a nest of them, I found out how fast my John Deere tractor would go, and I managed to get away from them. But uh, they're they're nasty, nasty little creatures. Uh, wasn't funny at the time, but uh, we were... We were uh, horse packing up in uh, Wyoming one time, and uh, my business partner, Roberta, her horse went across a couple of dead logs in the ground and stirred up a bunch of these things, which flew out and stung her horse on the butt. And let me tell you, she had an interesting ride for about 100 yards till she got the horse back under control. So if it's that, yeah, little, it's yellow and, yeah, that little yellow and brown one, uh, those are the ones you probably would want to eliminate. Spinosad okay. should do the job for you. Okay, Bill. Uh, he he said that it had like a purple rear end on it, about as big as a cigarette butt. And I don't uh, know what that. That no, that's not one. I mean, needs to worry about. That's one of the spider oh. killers, probably. And he doesn't want to try to pick it up or corner it or anything. But those are solitary. They're just going to be one wasp in a hole. But uh, that's what if he, he said. Hits, yeah. No, that's that's nothing for him to worry about at all. But if he hits okay, if a we... bunch. Where a bunch of them come out, yeah, that's that's bad news. Okay, I'll tell them that. If we want to get make him move, all you do is just put the hose out there on drip, yeah. or uh, and just a, flood 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 his uh, little uh, house yeah. there, and he'll leave. Yeah, he'll leave. And uh, um, if you want to do it by hand, you can always just uh, use a big watering can and add just a little bit of orange oil to it, and uh, that will encourage uh, him to go elsewhere. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that was the information I needed. We he was uh, he didn't want to work around that cutting celery with that little bugger in there. So I'll, no. I'll tell him. No, can... that 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 one's not going to bother him at all. Oh, okay. Then we don't have to worry about it. I wouldn't worry about it, but you know, there are people. It's kind of like snakes. I had an aunt who always said every snake in the world's dangerous because she's liable to hurt herself trying to get away from it. And if he has an allergy to stings or he just has, a, you know, a fear of them, yeah, you can run him off and make him go elsewhere. But uh, I just ignore him, and they ignore me when I've got him around my garden. Okay, well, that's real good information, Bob. Hey, thanks for taking my call and answering my questions about these you uh You know, these it's always buggers. a pleasure. So what variety of carrots are you planting, James? Well, there's one that uh, Johnny's has got. They're all pelletized. Uh, uh-huh. It's yeah. called a sugar snack. It's uh-huh. uh, You've got to have sandy loam because these babies will get it nine, ten inches long. Oh, wow. And okay. uh, you, you dig them, pull them out of the ground, and they look like fluorescent orange. <laughs> they're, they're and sweet. Oh man! Well, I don't have any sandy soil, so I guess I'll have to come see your uh, your your stand when you've got them ready out there. So you guys have a great Sunday, and uh, I always look forward to talking to you. Thank you for calling. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. All right, let's see. Yeah, let's go ahead and take one more caller before we take a break, and that would be Kay. Good morning, Kay. Hi, Bob. I have a Hi. couple of questions. Okay. I have a Bermuda lawn. I keep about four inches tall or mm-hmm. six inches if I don't mow. Um, but I am having a big problem with oxalis. Okay. And, and is this, is this all real... the other weeds too, but that's the worst. Um, is this a real sunny area? Uh, yeah, 
south facing back lawn. Uh, I've got some trees there. Nothing grows under them but weeds. But but this is overtaking the the middle part, and it's beginning to get in my front yard too. But um, but I've been finding it for five years, and it's the only thing that I can't kill. Yeah. Well, Bermuda wants full blazing hot sun. Bermuda likes water, and Bermuda likes fertilizer. If you've got enough That's sunlight, right. you can get your Bermuda so thick it will choke out the weeds. And, uh, I mean, it, it can get just to be so dense, uh, there's nothing else will come up through it. Uh, if there's not enough sunlight, it's going to be an ongoing battle. And at some point, you may decide you either have to go to a ground cover or more shade-tolerant grass. But things that would really help it in the fall, good fall fertilizing and a layer of compost, half an inch thick or so, over as much of the yard as you can put it. That The compost does more to suppress weeds than I have ever seen. Uh, I've got an area in my front yard that is Bermuda. It's a, uh, This is in the bigger part of my yard. It's an area we uh, use for a croquet court. And several years ago, the grass burrs had gotten so thick in there that even the dogs wouldn't walk through the area. I put like half inch of good compost over that area and the next spring, instead of having 10,000 sticker burr plants, I think I pulled out three plants. So compost has, it's a natural pre-emergent that takes care of the seed for a lot of those different weeds. And um, I'd, I'd put your fertilizer down first, but then as much of that area as you can, put a layer of compost over it, and that's going to go a long way toward uh, suppressing those weeds and keeping them from ever coming up. Fertilize that uh, Bermuda about four times a year, and it will get so thick you will have very few weed problems there. Okay, what do I fertilize it with? Any of the good organics. Medina makes a great one called Growing Green. Maestro makes one called Texas Tea. Nature's Creation makes one they call Premium Lawn Food. Any of those will be excellent for your Bermuda. But stay away from the, oh, Scott's products that have the weed killers and everything else in with them. They don't work, and they actually stunt your Bermuda grass, and they don't last nearly as long. So uh, those are just three of my favorites. Espoma also makes one that can be used on the grass, but quite frankly, it's a little expensive, but Nature's Creation, Maestro Grow, and uh, Medina are the three that all make an extremely good fertilizer for Bermuda grass. It's reasonably priced, does not burn, and uh, is just very, very good for the grass. Okay. Will it hurt? I have a little bit of St. Augustine that's coming over from my neighbor's yard that's trying to take over. Will it hurt that? It will love it. It will love it. Okay, St. Augustine good. is the only and grass around that's stronger than Bermuda, and St. Augustine will really choke out the weeds, but the difference is St. Augustine has to be watered. Bermuda, if we yeah. get into a bad drought, then you have to stop watering. It turns brown, but then it comes back out when we get rain. Unfortunately, St. Augustine, if it doesn't get water, it turns brown and it stays brown. Right. Compost, where do I get that or what kind? Um, I, you would want to stay away from what they call biosolids compost, but you would like a good manure compost. I usually buy from Stone and Soil Depot. They've got six different locations around now, I think, and uh, uh, that's okay. the one. I used to get it from Fertile Garden Supply, and now the old Fertile Garden Supply is now a Stone and Soil location, and uh, they make a, they make a really good compost. Uh, most of the Stone and Soils carry the product from New Earth, and you just want to be sure 
sure that you always get the manure base, not the one that has the biosolids. I think that that particular stone and soil location, which is out on 1604 South of Bandera Road, I think they still make a fair amount of their own compost, and that's the best of the best. Okay, okay, I'll get that then. Uh, second question is, I have a couple of crepe myrtle trees that are about 12 feet tall. Uh-huh. I want to get rid of them because they're right next to the swimming pool and it's killing the, <laughs> the filter. It's killing the pup. Yeah. So, yes. so uh, I, yeah, I know we can go and cut them down, but I was wondering if there's somebody that has the big machine that can come in and pull them out. And I wouldn't let them. I wouldn't them? let them. I wouldn't let them anywhere near my swimming pool with that big machine. Uh, they oh, okay. the the chance of their damaging your pool would outweigh any benefits of uh, trying to if they're if they're close enough to the pool that the flowers are a problem. Um, I might trust a couple of guys to dig them out by hand, but I'm not going to let any big big equipment come around. You know uh, that swimming pool is an expensive investment, and we don't want them to mess right. it up. I guess uh, the small pool is about 10 foot from it. The big mm-hmm. pool is probably 20 or more, but um, is you just so cut them down? I would cut them down or I would see if anybody, if they're that size, you know, that's still a size that could be dug by hand. Uh, there are people out there, tree diggers, that uh, they dig around, they wire up the root ball with uh, chicken wire normally, and then they're able to lift that out of the soil. If these are a good variety, uh, bloom well and have a nice color, you might find somebody interested. If they're some of the more common varieties, uh, then you probably are just better to cut them down and uh Maybe let them, maybe let them come out and make a, a small bush that doesn't make as many flowers. But I, I it's it's just not going to be worth the danger or the expense of trying to dig them and move them. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. You are certainly welcome, and you have a great Sunday, Kay. Appreciate the call. Don, let's get our uh, let's get the goodbye. Let's get our bottom of the hour break done. We'll be back and start with Judy. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. Uh, Don tells me that uh, if you've been getting a busy signal, we actually have a couple of open lines now. That doesn't happen very often during the show, but uh, if you'd like to get through, we're going to have time. We're going to talk to Judy next, but uh, probably have time for a couple of calls after that. So dial right now. You know the number, 210-599-5555. While I say good morning, Judy. Hi, good morning. Uh, good morning. I have two, maybe three questions. Okay. Uh, and especially, oh, these mosquitoes. I use mosquito dunks in my bird baths. I have two of them. Yeah. And I still have larvae. I mean, I see uh, lots of mosquitoes are trying to, well, not mosquitoes, but the larvae. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I use the ones that are like donuts. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then I separate it and get chips out of because it's not the thing is not very big. And I've also tried—I think you said to try like a teaspoon or two of uh, orange oil in there, but I don't want to use too much because I'm afraid I'll hurt the birds. So, sure. what am I doing wrong, Matt? I don't. Uh, that and this is in a bird bath. Yes, I, yeah, my bird baths. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. other than getting getting rid of the water every couple of days, it's. You can see a whole bunch of these squiggly things in there. You, you might try. I, I'm surprised because uh, 
normally either one of those things would would get them under control um the the one other thing they make something they call mosquito bits that you could put in there that uh and for whatever reason they might be more effective but golly and and is is it the medina orange oil that you're using oh yeah golly i've 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 yeah. never seen the orange oil failed to kill the mosquitoes. You must have a, uh, a mighty tough breed of mosquitoes. If this were a bigger pond, I'd tell you to get some of the little fish they call gambusia or mosquito fish that eat the larvae, but I can't, uh, I don't think that'd, that they'd do well long term in a bird bath. But I would, uh, golly, I'd. Let, let I'd, me try the orange oil again. What's the portion of the, the, what am I supposed to, how, how much am I supposed to do that? How, how big is the bird bath? They're not very big. It uses about a, maybe a gallon and a half of water. Okay. Here's what I would do. I Normally, I wouldn't do it this strong, but I'd use like half a teaspoon of orange oil. But I would do it last thing in the evening when the birds are probably going to not be around till the next morning. Um, I think that would be a good time. But I'd, I'd use maybe half a teaspoon of orange oil in uh, in the individual mm. bird baths. And I'll bet, you, I'll bet you they'd be dead if you went back 15 minutes later. Oh, wow. I'll try that. Okay. My uh, other question is, I have a mountain laurel. It's about four, three to four feet high. Mm-hmm. And I know you've been asked before, and I, I know you have to dig the hole first. When can I transplant it, though? You can do it almost any time. Um, during the, the cooler weather would be better. If you could wait till around Thanksgiving or so, that would be the perfect time. The thing oh. about Mount Laurels, the most critical thing is you cannot break up the root ball. Uh, Mount Laurels are, just think of it as a giant turkey egg or something like that. You break that egg and uh, it just doesn't work out well. So um, what I would do in moving that that Mount Laurel, and that's a good size to move. It would have been better to do it while it was smaller. But you can kind mm-hmm. of dig a almost a trench around it and then wrap it up very tightly with an old bed sheet or a towel or something like that. Then you do what we call undercutting it. You take your shovel and you kind of break it loose from the ground. But do everything you can to keep from disturbing the soil right around the roots. When you lift it to move it to its new home, uh, you lift it by the root ball only. You never move it by the top. And uh, then after, and certainly don't plant it any deeper. Be sure you're planting it a little higher, if anything. Water it in good with uh, Garrett shoes. Maybe add a little bit of Super Thrive to that. But the single most important thing in transplanting a mountain laurel is don't break the root ball. So uh, do it very gently. Be sure if you're if, if you're not Wonder Woman, be sure you have a strong helper yeah. that can help lift that thing and move it. <laughs> okay. And, and then spider webs. Uh, I know you've been asked about this before. I have a whole bunch of them. One spider, and I forgot what you said. I think yesterday I used a little bit of orange oil and molasses, but I forgot what that recipe was for. And I sprayed it on one of them. That spider came. I was on the corner of the eaves. It, uh-huh. it looks vicious. Yeah. Uh, almost wanted to attack me. And every morning there's a spider web from the car to the eaves. And I, I, right. I've never well, seen so many spider webs before. 
Well, and of course, spiders are actually, other than brown recluse and black widows, they're your friend because they're getting rid mm. of a lot of the insects that can be a problem in your garden. But um, okay. the best thing to dissolve the web is a little bit of ammonia. Just a small amount of ammonia with water, it'll just dissolve that web. It'll just turn it into nothing. And so you can okay. spray you can spray with a little ammonia and water periodically. And that's very safe for you and uh, very safe for the environment. But it just uh, totally dissolves the webs and uh, will help you a great deal there. Okay. Well, that's it. Thank you so much. And I'll try the, a little bit of a uh, half teaspoon of orange oil to my bird bath this evening. Yeah, and you let me know how it works for you. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Okay, thank you. Thank Have you a good too. day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Don, let's get our last uh, break of the show out of the way. I'm looking forward to the special song, even if it's not a fishing song. It sounds like something's going to make me laugh. So uh, let's do that break, and then we'll see how much time we have left for phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Dog might be a Democrat. I pay for all his health care and I buy everything he eats. I provide him with a place to live just to keep him off the streets. But he just acts like he's entitled, even trying to. Don, you said you had something funny to play, <laughs> and that's uh, I'll look forward to listening to the whole thing at some point. <laughs> well, thank you for a smile and a laugh this morning. We all need more of that in our lives, and uh, anyway, I find that humorous. Hope nobody takes offense at it, but I, you just got to be able to laugh at things sometimes, and uh, that's that's good. Uh, unionizing the cats. I don't know how that's going to work out, though. Uh, we better get back to phone calls here. It's going to be John and Dwayne and Chan, and John's up first. Good morning. Well, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I, I'm, I'm going to pull this one out if i got enough time. Okay. Uh, you know that the lake was stolen from us and it dropped persistent right uh 12 yes, sir. and all the mussels were out there mm-hmm. laying up there and just getting the suntan and all the little coons were out there just gorging themselves and if you've ever been irritated by a coon you you got uh, a payback on them on that yep. right there because they ate themselves to death and uh, it's tragic and uh, then the buzzards ate the coons but Oh, that's interesting. I did not know. I guess the shells were too sharp or something for the raccoons. Uh, that's that's interesting information. No, these were like three, four inch uh, clams that they slid uh-huh. open and, uh-huh. and ate the uh, the mussel, and wow. uh, they just gorged themselves. And uh, <laughs> they've caused me enough grief over the years where I I got a chuckle. But like I said, it is tragic. But my question was. I harvested, and 
I was competing with the coons to get these uh, uh, wild persimmon when mm-hmm. they got ripe off of the tree, and I'd like to uh, uh, sprout the, or grow those. Should, yeah. Can you give Oh, they they grow out. very easily. You of course, uh, you know, you're you're getting that black fruit off the female tree, and and we're talking the native one that has so oh, they're about the size of an olive, have a black fruit. Right. Yeah. They they sprout best, you know, actually if they've gone through the tummy of an animal and uh, been you know impacted by the digestive enzyme. So what I would do, obviously, you can't do that. Uh, but I would soak them in garret juice, which has that apple cider vinegar in it, which does basically the same thing, but it's got some other good things in it, too. I'd soak them in garret juice for probably 30 to 45 minutes or so, and then just plant them in potting soil, plant them maybe three-quarters of an inch deep, and the great majority of them are going to sprout and grow easily for you. All right, that's it. That's the question. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it and uh, always enjoy talking to you. You get out and have a good Sunday, and we'll talk again, and we'll move on and talk to Dwayne. Good morning, Dwayne. Hi. How you doing this morning? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. I'm just trying to figure out how to – I have a, a problem with uh, St. Augustine grass. Uh-huh. I've got, uh, I've got two red oak trees in my front yard. And uh, it just seems like because it's a lot of shade, mm-hmm. the grass just won't grow. Every year I'm trying to, I'm out there trying to do everything I can to get the grass to fill and it gets thinner and thinner each year. My question was, is there, is, I mean, is there anything I can do about that or would it be best for me to plant a different type of grass? Well, unfortunately, St. Augustine is our most shade-tolerant grass. Now, there's some varieties of St. Augustine that are much more shade-tolerant than others. The uh, one you want to stay away from is Floritam. It's a great grass, but it loves more sun. Uh, the best St. Augustine varieties uh, for shade, one of them is called Delmar, D-E-L-M-A-R. The other is called Palmetto, P-A-L-M-E-T-T-O. So it's not a matter of the grass dying out. It's just the grass isn't thickening up. Right, yeah. It, it's there's an area that's close to my garden, and every year I have to either either till it up and put put some more sod down because it just it just dies out. Yeah, and then the rest, just the, rest of the yard is getting really thin, and I, I thought it was because it wasn't getting enough sun, so yeah, I and that's, cleared the trees out. Yeah, and that's that's probably where the whole problem started was not enough sun. The thing that will help it more than anything else would be to put a thin layer of compost over it sometime this okay. fall. We're cool enough that I think you could probably do it any time. Most of the forecasts I'm seeing, we're pretty much done with the 90s. We're going to be in the 80s and, and gradually cooling off. So whenever you can, I would just get some good manure compost. Um, mm-hmm. Or if it's just a small area, you could just buy some bag manure somewhere. But uh, maybe half an inch of uh, manure compost over the area, that's going to do more than thicken up you know, any grass that you have. And if you have any anywhere that you decide to, you know, buy a little bit more grass, look for Del Mar or uh, Palmetto. Those are the two varieties that are going to be most shade tolerant. But I'm going to tell you that probably fertilizer and compost is going to be your best bet for thickening that grass up. And now that you've gotten rid of the shade problem, I can't imagine that it's not going to look a whole lot better next spring. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. You keep me posted on how it does. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, Thanks, I will. Wayne. 
Uh, thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, we'll finish up with Jan. Good morning, Jan. Hi. How are you? Um, I have oh, a qu- couple of questions. I'll see if I can get them in. Uh, one of okay. Them we've is got about house, three minutes. Go ahead. My house faces north. Okay. And so I get uh, morning sun, and I have a stretch in the front. I, I have a side entrance garage, so it's long. And I have a bed there, but I would like like a liner in the front. I tried dwarf liriope thinking they liked the shade, but no, they just didn't do well at all. And so is there anything that I can put as like a border? I have some taller things that are against the brick in the back, but I just wanted a border. What do you have against the brick? That'll give me an idea of uh, how much sun you actually have. Do you have, what, Petaluma? No, Petaluma. Okay. Okay. Um, and um, the giant liriope are back there. Okay. I probably would go with dwarf mondo grass rather than, uh, you know, than the liriopes. Uh, they, that, uh, well, regular mondo grass, of course, is going to get about 12, 16 inches tall. Dwarf mondo is going to get about no more than maybe three inches tall. So if you're looking for something really low, I would try dwarf mondo. I think that's going to be the most shade-tolerant plant that I can think of that would make like a good border. Now, for a plant that gets a foot tall, there is a new variety of cast iron plant, uh, Aspidistra, out there that's called Tiny Tank, and it doesn't get over about a foot tall. So if you're looking for something that tall, that would certainly be a choice. And, uh, you know, it gets the name cast iron for a reason. It's just almost totally bulletproof. But if you're looking for something that's going to stay down in that four or five inch rain, uh, range, uh, look for Dwarf Mondo. I think that's going to be uh, probably your very best choice there. Okay. And then I have a compost question, too, but you just sort of answered it. I have never done fall compost, but my yard uh-huh. took a terrible beating a year ago from chinch bugs. But it okay. has come back. Um, uh-huh. I, I never could find any sod to put there because it was not available. And so I just let it go. And with all the rain, it has come back. So you think uh, putting on some fall compost will continue to help it? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, I would fertilize, but the compost is going to be probably the single best thing you could do. Not real thick, somewhere between a quarter and a half an inch. Uh, what I do is I kind of dump it out with a wheelbarrow, and then I take uh, what we a hard rake, sometimes called a grass rake as opposed to a leaf rake, and I'll flip it upside down so I've just got that metal bar and the tines are pointing upward, and that's the best thing I've ever found to spread that compost out. And just don't try to do the whole yard in one day. Do a little bit of it every day but that's going to help your yard, help your grass more than anything else I can think of. And uh, anyway, I will talk again. I'm out of time for today. 